Hello, 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 you lovely, lucky people. Welcome back. This is the first episode in a brand new series of the Hurtwood Muse podcast. It's December 2021. We're about a week away from the end of term. And I just thought, it's time. It's time for us to start a new series of the Hurtwood Muse podcast. Um, It's been a really long time. I apologise for the break. We've been doing things slightly differently here. We've been gathering loads and loads of material up before putting these episodes out, so it's not quite so much of a mad rush getting them done at the last minute. Um, So, yeah. Thank you for being patient with us. We've got some excellent stuff coming up in this series. We've been making a much more concerted effort to get people into the cupboard, recording uh, material every single week. So, yeah, we've got a big pile of stuff to get through. I hope you're ready for um, what's coming your way. This week, we've got a series of recordings that were done in October 2021. First up, we've got Douglas Wadsworth reading the poetry of Charles Bukowski. Then we've got Tom Goss reading some extracts from Tennessee Williams' journal. We've got Rue Richards reading from Oscar Wilde's A Picture of Dorian Gray, along with some snippets from Vladimir Nabokov. And then we've got Mia Rosen and Tom again having a conversation about cancel culture. So, plenty to wrap your chops around. And yeah, please stick with us if you like what we do check out the hurtwood muse blog at musehurtwood.net or you can get in touch with myself sam.turton or my co-muser louise.hale if you want to contribute to the podcast or the blog or competitions we've got another competition coming up in the new year hot off the back of our um identity competition which we finished earlier this week which was brilliant we'll talk more about that um uh, further on in the series but yeah there's another competition coming up which is the tower poetry competition which starts in the new year it runs all the way through till march the first prize is one thousand pounds the theme is dream and uh, yeah we'll be doing some more stuff about that in the new year but in the meantime sit back relax and enjoy the first hurtwood muse podcast of this school year Thanks for listening, folks. There is uh, probably a lot of time to edit this. We're going to start with a poem by Charles Bukowski called Out of, the Ar- Out of the Arms of One Love. And that is a poem I was shown by an Italian girl. She read uh, Italian translations of Bukowski, and this is one of the poems I was shown originally in Italian. Heard it in Italian. And uh, I don't speak Italian, so I'm going to read you the Queen's English version. Out of the Arms of One Love and into the arms of another. I have been saved from dying on the cross by a lady who smokes, writes songs and stories, and is much kinder than the last. Much, much kinder. And the sex is just as good, or better. It isn't pleasant to be put on the cross and left there. It's much more pleasant to forgive a love which didn't work, as all love finally doesn't work. It's much more pleasant to make love along the shore in Del Mar, in room 42 and afterwards, sitting up in bed, drinking good wine, talking and touching, or smoking, listening to the waves. I've died too many times, believing and waiting, 
waiting in a room, staring at a cracked ceiling, waiting for the phone, a letter, a knock, a sound going wild inside, while she danced with strangers in nightclubs. Out of the arms of one love and into the arms of another, it's not pleasant to die on the cross. It's much more pleasant to hear your name whispered in the dark. So that is the first Bukowski poem, of which is being read this evening. Uh, the second Bukowski poem is called The Genius of the Crown. And I think it's just about being a person. Whatever that means. There is enough treachery, hatred, violence, absurdity in the average human being to supply any given army on any given day. And the best at murder are those who preach against it. And the best at hate are those who preach love. And the best at war, finally, are those who preach peace. Those who preach God need God. Those who preach peace do not have peace. Those who preach peace do not have love. Beware the preachers. Beware the knowers. Beware those who are always reading books. Beware those who either detest poverty or are proud of it. Beware those quick to praise, for they need praise in return. Beware those who are quick to censor. They are afraid of what they do not know. Beware those seeking constant crowds, for they are nothing alone. Beware the average man, the average woman. Beware their love, their love is average, seeks average. But there is genius in their hatred. There is enough genius in their hatred to kill you, to kill anybody. Not wanting solitude, not understanding solitude. They will attempt to destroy anything that differs from their own. Not be able to create art, they will not understand art. They will consider their failure as creators only as a failure of the world. Not being able to love fully, they will believe your love incomplete, and then they will hate you. And their hatred will be perfect. Like a shining diamond. Like a knife. Like a tiger. Like hemlock. Their finest art. Bukowski is cool. Uh, These are the two Bukowski poems I'm going to read you. And this is a poem I wrote. Uh, an original poem, if you will. If that's the way to put it in, like I say, the Queen's English. And here, are, here it is. Here is one of mine. Depending on how I feel after reading this, I could read you another one. Audience. Um, whoever's listening, all three of us. It's called Window, and the, I was thinking a lot about windows. Not as, That's not entirely true, actually. I was thinking a lot about firing weapons, firing a gun through a window. There's a specific line in that. How about here? I was just thinking a lot of closing my eyes, a lot of improve, to impress. To impress. Anyways, I'm, I'm letting on too much, uh, obviously, naturally. Um, so this is window Rinsed Just a little bit squeezed My body feels a little tighter now Her hands twist the attention out of me Read me 
You said you could, so read me out loud in your thoughts and tell me what I'm doing here. You stop me from waiting. I'm waiting, a lot more than I should have, but just waiting, only that. I'm firing a gun through a window. I can see the impression it leaves with you, but why would it? Why? Because when have you ever seen that? And what's the point in a window? I didn't know anything about luck until I met you. This is an extract from Tennessee Williams Journals. Tuesday the 10th of March 1936. Life is various. Today I would like to leave off the record. I was sick tonight. Attack of nervous heart in short story class. Got worked up over professor reading my story aloud. Why, I don't know. I must learn to control my nerves. Didn't last long, I took a pill. Still, it is always very depressing. Makes you feel cut off from the world, and just at a time when I'm so eager to be apart. Still, things like this proves one's spirit. Ignore it, I say. Go on as if nothing happened, the only way. Besides, I'm no longer a coward about it. I was actually not afraid. Just embarrassed because I felt my nervous agitation was so obvious. Class criticised my story very harshly. Only one girl liked it, and she didn't get the point. Professor Webster seemed pleased with it, however, and told me to write more soon. But I was disappointed in my story, and feel discouraged about my whole prospect as a writer. What the hell? I'd better sleep it off like poor old Sam. Hi, um, this is an extract from The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, um, and it's my favourite bit, one of my favourite bits of the book. After a pause, Lord Henry pulled out his watch. I'm afraid I must be going, Basil, he murmured, and before I go, I insist on your answering a question that I put to you some time ago. What is that, said the painter, keeping his eyes fixed on the ground. You know quite well. I do not, Harry. I would, well, I will tell you what it is. I want you to explain to me why you won't exhibit Dorian Gray's picture. I want the real reason. I told you the real reason. No, you did not. You said it was because there was too much of yourself in it. Now that's childish. Harry, said Basil Hallward, looking him straight in the face. Every portrait that is painted with feeling is a portrait of the artist, not of the sitter. The sitter is merely the accident, the occasion. It is not he who is revealed by the painter. Is rather the painter who on the coloured canvas reveals himself. The reason I will not exhibit this picture is that I'm afraid that I've shown it in it the secret of my own soul. Lord Henry laughed. And what is that? He said. I will tell you, said, ba said Hallward. But an expression of perplexity came over his face. I'm all expectation, Basil, continued his companion, glancing at him. Oh, there really is very little to tell, Harry, answered the painter and I'm afraid you will hardly understand it. Perhaps you will hardly believe it. Lord Henry smiled, and, leaning down, plucked a pink-petaled daisy from the grass and examined it. I'm quite sure I shall understand it, he replied, gazing intently at the little golden white feathered disc. And, as for believing things, I can believe anything, provided that it is quite incredible. The wind shook some blossoms from the trees. The heavy lilac blooms, with their clustering stars, moved to and fro in the languid air. A grasshopper began to chirp by the wall, 
and like a blue thread, a long, thin dandelion da- dragonfly floated past on its on its brown gauze wings. Lord Henry felt as if he could hear Basil Hallward's heart beating and wondered what was coming. Lost my place. The story simply is, said the painter after some time, two minutes, two months ago, I went to a crush at Lady Brandon's. You know we poor artists have to show ourselves in society from time to time, just to remind the public that we're not savages. With an evening coat and a white tie, as you told me once, anybody, even a stockbroker, can gain a reputation for being, civil, for being civilised. Well, after I'd been in the room about ten minutes, talking to, a huge over, talking to huge overdressed dowagers and tedious academians, I suddenly became conscious that someone was looking at me. I turned halfway round and saw Dorian Gray for the first time. When our eyes met, I felt that I was growing pale. A curious sensation of terror came over me. I knew that I had come face to face with someone whose mere personality was so fascinating that if I allowed it to do so, it would absorb my whole nature, my whole soul, and my very art itself. I didn't want any external influence in my life. You know that yourself, Harry, how independent I am by nature. I've always been my own own master. I had at least always been so until I met Dorian Gray. Then... But I don't know how to explain it to you. Something seemed to me that I was on the verge of a terrible crisis in my life. I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I grew afraid and turned to quit the room. I was not, it was not conscious that made, conscience that made me do so. It's a sort of cowardice. I take no credit from, to myself for trying to escape. Conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm. That's all. This is Vladimir Nabokov, and it's about reading and about the experience of reading um, and, like, over-analyzing reading instead of feeling um, writing. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah. All we have to do when reading Bleak House is to relax and let our spines take over. Although we read with our minds, the seat of artistic delight is between the shoulder blades. That little shiver behind is is quite certainly the highest form of emotion that humanity has attained when evolving pure art and pure science let us worship the spine and its tingle let us be proud of our vert- of our being vert- vertebrates for we are vertebrates tipped at the head with a divine flame the brain only continues the spine the wick really goes through the whole length of the candle so that's a quote about reading and experiencing reading from Nabokov and then this is a different quote um, or a different little extract from Nabokov um, yeah without any wind blowing the sheer weight of a raindrop shining in the parasitic luxury on a cordate leaf caused its tip to dip and what looked like a globule of quicksilver performed a sudden glissando down the centre vein and then having shed its bright load the the relieved leaf unbent tip leaf dip relief the instant it all took to happen seemed to me not so much a fraction of time as a fissure in it a missed heartbeat which was refunded at once by the patter of rhymes i say patter intentionally for when a gust of wind did come the trees would briskly start to drip to drip all together as in crude imitation of a recent downpour as the stanza I was already muttering resembled the shock of wonder I had experienced for a moment, heart and leaf had been one. And yeah, there's another one, um, which 
don't know if it's as interesting. It's also kind of just commentary on writing and reality. Um, you can cut it if you like. Um, reality is a very subjective affair. I can only define it as a kind of gradual accumulation of information, a specialization. If we take a lily, for instance, or any other kind of natural object, a lily is more real to a naturalist than it is to an ordinary person, but it is still more real than, but it is still more real to a botanist. And yet, another stage of reality is reached with, with that botanist, who is a specialist in lilies. You can get nearer and nearer, so to speak, to reality, but you never get near enough, because reality is an infinite succession of steps, levels of perception, false bottoms, and hence unquenchable, unattainable. You can know more and more about one thing, but you can never know everything about one thing. It's hopeless. So that we live surrounded by more or less ghostly objects. That machine there, for instance, it's a complete ghost to me. I don't understand a thing about it. And, well, it's a mystery to me. As much as it would be a mystery to Lord Byron. As, it's, a mu it's as much a mystery to me as a much of a mystery it would be to Lord Byron. Are we going to say There you go. Yes. I uh, hope right. you enjoy. Well, how do we start is, this? Is it already on? I don't know. Do you think it is? Yeah, he said it was. It's a cool microphone. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to talk about cancel culture, um, which is, you know, ostracism in professional and personal circles. Mia, what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, well, I definitely think that uh, cancel culture has evolved over the last few years with um, massive use of social media and an increase in followers, subscribers, and people using um, social media for they have more access to electricity and such things. And it's starting to become an issue. Yeah. So, at what point in, in time do you think that the cancel culture kind of became more of a prominent thing? Mm, well, know, in terms of social media, has it always been there since the beginning, or has it kind of been this last few years or so? So I don't think that it's been there since the beginning, because, I mean, we had the 2000s era with uh, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, and all these celebrities yeah. who were obviously getting quote-unquote cancelled in the magazines, you know, the <laughs> page six. And then YouTube started becoming a platform after Vine, I believe. And for um, for a moment there, it was calm, but I think that one and a half, two years after YouTube's creation, um, certain YouTubers starting to get started to get cancelled, or mm. just started to be pointed out as a bad example. And I think that that's when it started. So I'd say twenty ten, something like that. Yeah, I think it's kind of people discovered the different ways you can use social media, because. You know, with Twitter originally, which has now become a massive platform for ca cancelling, um, the only people that really had Twitter back when it first formed was kind of like reporters, journalists, and kind of people in different industries as a way to communicate kind of achievements within that niche. Um, and then with YouTube, I felt like that started as a kind of platform for making fun videos and and challenges and whatever and now people have really understood perhaps you know even more of a lockdown with different prosumers realizing that they can use it for themselves and it's you know with tiktok it's now very accessible to 
to get a large following that kind of people have understood the power of it and change the way they use these apps yeah i mean some people have an agenda there was this girl on on tiktok recently she originally started a rumor that um jeffree star and kanye west were dating and it was absolutely fake and yet her video blew up and everyone on the internet started believing in that so it just proves how yeah big of an effect there is so what do you think of that power of cancel culture and just the news spreading so fast yeah i think with 24-hour news and now you know these forms of media where we can get instantly our opinion i think media nowadays has not become researched enough it's too reactive you look at bbc news for example and you know something's immediately happened and then within you know two minutes half an hour of of an event occurring or starting to occur we already get opinions from different news sources and so without i i don't think you can provide reliable information without you know taking time to set back and 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 actually find the facts before you supposedly report on it because what you're saying effectively is just like one one person's who's there their their point of view and um like for example you know if um there's a crisis or, or something like that then of course news should take place over whatever is in its um in its place as it is now um because I think people need to understand that these things can be cancelled, they can be changed, they can be rescheduled and whatever, and instead it's just like a constant vomit of information. Yeah. What was your opinion on... Uh, so in, in the last few days, the MP um, was stabbed and um, in, in the UK. Um, there was a Conservative MP who was stabbed... Um, in his constituency, I believe, um, and there was a um, uh, kind of a political activist, a commentator, who said, um, uh, paraphrasing, of course, because I don't know the direct <laughs> quote, but um, he kind of said, you know, um, before Boris Johnson says, uh, we're very sorry for his loss and whatever, can we take some time to uh, realise kind of this man's politics and what he stood for you know he was a roman catholic and um he uh had some perhaps you know some backward views on um on women and and gay people and whatever but then he later took down the quote after about an hour uh, the, the the tweet after about an hour because um because of people's reactions to it yeah i mean listen the thing is i don't think that whether he put it you know, deleted the comment in an hour, it won't really matter because that's still what he thinks. However, even though I most likely am completely against what he's saying, that doesn't mean that I can't let him have his opinion and therefore that doesn't mean that I'm going to kill him for his opinion. Yeah. I mean, this is a free country. This is, you know, not 
you can say what you want. There is the freedom of speech, and whether you disagree or agree with it, that doesn't mean that you have to be violent towards one another, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really help solve any conflict. Hmm. Violence leads to more violence, and it's never been any different. Yeah. So that's my personal opinion on that. Uh, as for his um, personality, his character, I can't necessarily comment on it because I'm not that involved in England politics. <laughs> <laughs> I am not English. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. What about very big YouTubers, TikTok celebrities getting cancelled day by day for, you know, example, vaping or saying something that is insensitive or... Yeah. Micro examples like those, and th- they get cancelled for it. What do you think? I think we live in a society now where very often people aren't allowed a second chance. You kind of, you get people, for example, um, those guy on I'm a Celebrity a couple of years ago, um, one of the Maynard brothers, and he'd made some, I think, racist comments um, when he was like 15 on Twitter, which were obviously unacceptable. Um, and he had to leave the show and whatever. And you kind of think, yeah, that's... Well, I, I kind of think that's very well, all very well. And, you know, of course he shouldn't have said those comments. But I think on on examples that are not that high a scale, we kind of tend to... Before we've gathered the information or whatever, we, we don't tend to give anyone a second chance. And they're kind of... Labelled. Yeah, labelled and struck aside um, when perhaps, you know, we don't actually know the full story. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't defend anyone who is racist, homophobic, sexist, all of those. However, when a surface, you know, a comment surfaces from 2012 and that person was 12 or 13 years old or 14 years old, I mean, was not grown up yet, didn't know enough about history, didn't experience enough. I don't think that you can hold somebody accountable for that. Yeah. I think that there is some degree of blame that they should take. But obviously, I don't think that going to the point where you ruined one's career just because they said mm. this when they were 13 and had no idea about history. I think that that's a little exaggerated, and I don't think that the internet takes it into consideration, considering the fact that yeah. the do- the people doing the cancelling are 12-year-olds. Yeah, They're 13. They don't understand you know, the point of looking at both sides. And I think I think it's got got to the point where it kind of it's so cross industry, cross medium. Now like you have um for example, heterosexual actors who have in the past played homosexual characters or whatever, and now there's um a section of that audience who refuse to watch those actors because they have taken the place of of perhaps a homosexual actor who could have played that character. And that kind of begs the question where, you know, do people need to be entirely honest about their public persona in order to kind of succeed in their chosen uh, profession? Yeah, um, I mean, with the actor thing, acting is acting. This is my opinion. So I don't think that it matters whether you're, you know, homosexual or heterosexual in order to play a certain role. Um, and with the whole putting on a persona thing in order to reach uh, success when it comes to your career on social media, I think that it's agreeable as long as it doesn't hurt 
any group of people. I mean, a person who's a, the perfect example of a person putting on a persona and not hurting anyone is Paris Hilton, for example. <laughs> yeah. Are we done? I think we're Do you think done. We're done. I think we are done. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Super. <laughs> that was interesting. Yes. All right. You can literally go on like there's so many different elements of the world. What? There's so many we different. We could go on for hours about that. Honestly, yeah.